Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, at risk of, uh, for some reason I'm embarrassed to tell this story, but uh, it's really a blessing. I was blessed to have parents that paid a huge bulk of my uh, tuition for my undergrad uh, degree. And I had to pay a little bit. Let me get my stool here. I had to pay a little bit, but you know, it was like a negligible amount, you know, like the amount you can make at Home Depot in the summer, you know, or doing chemistry research, you know, over the course of a summer. Uh, so it was, a, it was a gift, a huge gift. But at the end of my uh, freshman year of college, I got a letter in my student mailbox or envelope, and it was a check from the university for $800 because um, I must not have kept super tight accounting of my scholarships. I'd got a scholarship that was applied to my account. So there was like an overpayment and, you know, being a very broke freshman in college, looking at a check for $800 made out in my name was, was, it was a lot. And, you know, I had two simultaneous thoughts. You know, the first thing is, wow, I could have a lot of fun with this much money. <laughs> and the other simultaneous thought was like, of course I can't keep it. You know, of course I have to give it to my parents. Um, but I did get to have a little fun with it. Uh, what I did was I, I went to the bank and cashed it for eight $100 bills. And then, you know, I, I went back home for the summer. And uh, the, like the first morning I was back in my parents' house for the summer, uh, I waited because my dad uh, was working all night. And so I waited for him to get home. And he got, got home in the morning, super tired. Uh, and he's walking into the house up the driveway. And I, I come out of the house and I say, Dad, I'll give you $100 if you do one jumping jack right now. And he just kind of like looked at me for a minute. And, and he did a jumping jack. And I handed him, you know, crisp picture of Benjamin Franklin. And he's like, how many more of these can I do? I was like, you could do seven more. And so then there he is, you know, in his scrubs doing jumping jacks uh, after a, a, a long night of work and stuff like that. And so it was, it was fun. But I, I tell that story to, to hopefully give a little bit of texture about what's happening in our text. Specifically that when all you have comes from your father, it, everything is due to him. Like how absurd it would have been for me to be like, well, I, I got the scholarship or whatever, you know, when like my whole existence was supported by, you know, my, my parents. Um, today, Jesus tells one of the most brutal, uncomfortable parables in the, in, in the context of our journey through Mark, um, in this journey where we've been looking at the authority of Jesus, Jesus as King. And the main idea for us this morning <clears throat> in both these little teachings we have is this, you owe it to God. I owe it to God. You owe it to God. What is the it that we owe to God? You and I owe to God anything that we did not speak into existence from nothing. Anything that you did not produce from nothing out of your be own being, which in a word is what? Everything. You, me, all of us, owe it to God. Christian, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, workaholic, we all owe it to God. 
Yes, we work hard. Yes, you have great skills that allowed you to earn money or get a degree or invest wisely or save diligently. Yes and amen to all of that. But let me ask you this. Can any of us make our hearts beat? Did you put your own brain together with the gifts and abilities that you use to earn money, take care of your kids, manage a house, whatever. Our entire existence is a beautiful, extravagant gift from a loving creator. Whether we believe in God or not, whether we love God or not, the rain falls on the wicked as well as the righteous. All that I am, all that you are, all that I've done, all that you've done has flown from Yahweh, this name that God has revealed himself uh, to have in the Old Testament that means I am that I am, the self-existing one, the one through whom's, it, whose existence everything flows. You owe it to God. It's a clunky phrase, but I'm, I'm trying to play around with the phrase that I think is probably way more common in our culture, which is you owe it to yourself. Girl, you need a spa day. Like you owe it to yourself. And functionally, I think whether we're a Christian or not, the self has become the highest authority, the final arbit arbitrator of what is good and evil. Anything that is in direct uh, in, in conflict with what our self wants is wrong. And this idea is in direct conflict with what Jesus is teaching us today. If you were to be talking to a neighbor, a coworker, uh, someone maybe who doesn't follow Jesus, and you're like, I really want to do this thing, but I know that, that God is not what God has for me. I know it goes against what God has designed. Well, what would that neighbor or coworker say? Like, oh, I, they'd probably be pretty turned off. Like, I don't know about that, but like, you owe it to yourself to be happy. You owe it. I actually Googled this. You owe it to yourself. And I looked up memes. He's like, you owe it to yourself to live the life you've always wanted. That's the air we breathe. And the thought of living as though God was the master and sustainer of our entire existence, I think is, is, is pretty offensive in this day, in our day and age. And what we see in our text is that it's not new. It's an offensive thought. It was offensive thought to the religious people back in Jesus's day and age as well, 2000 years ago. Why is it? Why is that so offensive that we, that we all owe it to God? Well, I think at the root of sinful human nature is the lie, it's a relational lie, that God doesn't love me, that he's not out for my good. And so I have to reign. I have to be in control to meet my needs. This is the lie. This is what happened in Eden, the guard, at the, in, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's holding out on you. So you owe it to yourself to reach out and take the fruit. Take what you want. Take what you think will be good for you. Take what you think will satisfy your deepest God-given needs. The needs that sadly, tragically, only God can satisfy. And that's where all the breakdown comes from. One way to articulate the breakdown. All uh, is trying to meet our God-given needs apart from God in ways that seem right to us, but in the end lead to death. Three questions, or two questions for us today, or the options for us today are, one, will we give God his due? 
give what we owe to God in childlike trust that he loves us and wants our good? Or will we live in that lie that we owe it to ourselves to reach out and take what we want? And then as Jesus says, as as our text says, experience the destruction that always follows a self-ruled life. But those who have ears to hear, hear. Let's dive in. Verse one, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. Context, who is the them that Jesus is speaking to? Well, right before this passage, Jesus was confronted, approached by the religious leaders, the elite of his day and age, and they're asking a question about authority. By what authority are you doing these things? What were the things they were talking about? It was him cleansing the temple, flipping over tables and driving out money exchangers and people selling lambs and stuff. It's the question of authority. We're like deep in the conflict where the authority of King Jesus is coming up against the established authority of the religious leaders. And so now he just they evades the question in a masterful way, exposing the leaders. Last week we talked about that. And now he's masterfully teaching them in such a way where everyone will know that he's rebuking the religious leaders. Uh, but it's, evasive, it's sneaky in a parable. Look at verse, the rest of verse one. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. First thing we got to see is that Jesus is like an amazing jazz guitarist uh, with this parable where he's, he's like picking up a, a, a melody, a theme, a riff from uh, the Old Testament of this vineyard imagery. The image of, or metaphor of a vineyard was used all throughout the Old Testament to describe Israel as God's chosen people. And probably most prominently in the minds of the people he's telling this parable to would have been Isaiah 5, which says this, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, planted it with choices, vines. He built a watchtower in it, cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. That's just one of many, many, many texts uh, that talk about God's relationship to his people as a vineyard. Um, and it's, a, it's almost always used as a rebuke. In the Old Testament, the prophets, they use this image as a rebuke of God's people. And so Jesus, as the truer and better prophet sent from God, uh, is using the same language. He's, he's not making it up. He's working within the narrative and images of God's grand story of redemption. And he's inserting himself into the story as, as God, as the one who has authority to make those metaphors, to make the vineyard judgment metaphors against God's chosen people. It's a staggering, staggering claim, assertion of his authority. It's a bold power move. And it's a huge reason why they wanted to murder him. So now let's, let's enter the parable with our imaginations here. It's a beautiful setup in the beginning. Uh, to be honest, I, this is something I dream about. If I, if I ever won the lottery, I would love to set up a beautiful farm, you know, but I feel pretty called to be a pastor. So I'd hire someone, you know, to, to run the farm and, you know, grow my, you know, grass-fed beef for me or whatever. Uh, it's beautiful. It's this, this abundant, abundant farmer setting up a perfect, perfect setup. 
and then uh, with a with a pit to make the grapes into wine, a watchtower to keep it safe. It's everything that is needed. And he gives the use of it to some farmers, which meant that they got to use it for free. Like they had no skin in the game. It, they just get to like walk into this perfect setup thing and start working the vineyard to produce wine. The vines were planted, the infrastructure's in place. Like their job is to just not mess it up. And, and, and in return, they, 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 they get their cut. They work and get their cut and the generous owner gets his percentage. It's a straightforward setup. And personally, as someone who doesn't have a lot of capital or infrastructure available to me, it sounds like a sweet gig. Like, wait, I just did go work this ideal setup, you know, for free and get to benefit from it. Something that I didn't scrimp and save and suffer to, to earn or to get going. And I just have to share the profits. It's, it's a sweet gig when it takes a sad turn. Verse three. After they sent the servant, it says they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then the owner sent another servant to them, but they struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. One commentator said, the tenants pay their rent in blows and even murder some of the servants. And it... You, I think we can just be honest, like this doesn't make sense. Like it's, it's hard to identify from the outside with the tenants in this parable. Someone gave you free use of their vineyard for agreed upon portion of the harvest. Why would you be violent against them? Like, you know, it's, it's absurd. It's biting the hand that feeds you. After many servants get beaten or killed, the owner finally sends his son. The son is the heir who holds legal rights to the vineyard and will one day be the owner. The, the first attempt at collection with the servants represents the owner appealing to the tenant's integrity. We agreed upon this, this profit sharing arrangement. Are you gonna do what you said you would do, pay the guy? By sending his son, the owner's appealing to the law. This is the one who has legal claim over the vineyard. And even if they won't, follow through with their part of the contract, at least they'll fear the law, right? But instead, and absurdly, they think if we kill the heir, then maybe we can be in charge. Then, then we won't owe anything to anyone. We owe it to ourselves. We've worked hard in this vineyard. We should own it. As tenants, as people who got the free gift of being able to farm a beautiful vineyard, and benefit from someone else's prop property, resources, infrastructure, can we see just the ridiculous, the absurdity of their reasoning? Everything the tenants had was entrusted to them, was a gift. It, the, even the, the ability to work the vineyard was a gift and it, it, being able to provide for themselves. I don't have a transition for this. Let's talk about Nietzsche for a minute. He's a famous atheist philosopher, author, 
incredible mustache grower, apparently. I have a tender spot in my heart for Nietzsche. Uh, partially because he rode the atheist train all the way to its conclusion, like the, the logical thought train of where atheism goes. He was the OG, old school, hardcore atheist who somewhat courageously could acknowledge that if there is no God, if there's no one or nothing above humans, then we are all alone and there is no meaning. They're nihilists, man. Tell me if you get that movie reference later. I talk about Nietzsche a lot, but one idea that he's famous for is the, is the idea of God is dead. And I think this idea is often misunderstood by Christians who probably haven't read Nietzsche. It, it's, it's often conveyed in Christian circles uh, that atheists are out to prove that God is dead and Christians have to counterprove that he's alive, which has, may have its role, may have its, I mean, that, there might be a place where that's helpful, but what Nietzsche actually meant by the statement, God is dead, is that Western civilization, since the enlightenment and modernity, rational, uh, ra the rise of rationality, and honestly, much of the church in the West has done exactly what the tenant farmers have done in the text. They've killed God. They've killed the owner's son. Nietzsche's looking at the enlightenment, the age of reason, scientism, which is a religious belief system, uh, trusting in science. And he's saying that he's not making a de declaration on ultimate things. He's just saying like, we as a civilization have killed God. Why? For the exact reason that the tenants killed the owner's son, because we want to owe nothing to anyone. We want to run, we want to own and run the vineyard that we've been given for free, uh, which metaphorically is our very breath, the beats of our heart, our brains, our bodies, the world. We want to owe nothing to anyone but ourselves. And even in the church, this hurts, this stings, but we want God as long as he serves our ends. Maybe we want God to the point where he'll get us out of hell when we die and into heaven. Or maybe we want God, you know, to give us some chicken soup for the soul when we're feeling down, but we don't live like we owe our entire existence to God. I think when it comes down to it, a lot of the big C church, well, a lot of times when I talk about church, I'm talking about the big C church, um, would bristle at the reality that we owe our entire lives to God. Like, yes, you know, we typically we compartmentalize him. Like he helps me with my spiritual stuff, but then like I get my money, I handle my life. God can handle my sin, I will handle my life. We might sing all to him I owe, but do our lives the rest of the week according to what seems right to us. Or living how all our friends are working, coworkers, how our coworkers live. That was actually Nietzsche's critique of the church. He was surprisingly pretty knowledgeable about the Bible and Christianity. Uh, and he said that an overemphasis on the doctrine of justification has led tragically to a functional killing of the owner's son. Doctrine of justification, which says that Jesus died for our sins and provides forgiveness, justifying us, making us right with God, which is a true, beautiful doctrine that I would give my life for. But when we overemphasize it and underemphasize other parts of the teaching of scripture, it, it, it gets reduced to this. If I pray a prayer, 
and just mentally agree that Jesus died for my sins, then I'm good. I'll get into heaven and I can live the rest of my life however seems right to me. And if I mess up, it's all grace. Again, justification is true and beautiful, but when it's reduced, it's a way of killing the owner's son, where we want the son's blood for the forgiveness of sins, but we don't want his life. We don't want him to rule over us. We want a savior, but not a king or a Lord. Like we have to do something. I feel like like this this is intense, but we just have to do something with the fact that this parable was not told to the notorious sinners. This parable was not told to the people outside of God's people, of the church, of religious people. Who is this parable told? To the professional God people, the people who ran the temple, who probably had all of this Old Testament memorized. The Bible is saying that there is a way to be a professional religious person, to spend our whole lives doing churchy things, but functionally have killed God and kind of co-opted his stuff, his vineyard for our own ends. A few years into pastoring my first church uh, out of seminary, I had this breakdown moment this, where I realized that I had co-opted God's stuff for my own needs, my own desires. I like getting stuff done and I had kind of co-opted the, the truth that God wants to seek and save the lost for my own ends. To, I, I wanted to use God's mission, the great commission to, to silence that fear I had that my life didn't matter and I wasn't important. I was all about reaching people with the gospel, trying to motivate the church to help re- reach the lost as well, but it was coming not from a place of fullness and love, but a place of emptiness, of needing to feel like I mattered by getting stuff done for God. And it was just a terrifying moment of coming home to, to this awareness, the self-awareness, this conviction that I had just taken something that was good and beautiful from, from God and twisted it to meet my own needs. I don't, you know, I, I haven't been here at Car Road long enough to know how maybe this dynamic might have played out in our, how we might have killed the owner's son. But I hope we could just receive this teaching from Jesus with some curiosity, some some receptivity, some some openness, uh, a posture of humility, of of ways that we might have like taken God's stuff to use for our own needs, our own, uh, what we want it to do. This little vineyard that we have here as uh, from Carl Road. Like all, all that we experience together as a church family is, is grace. God's grace through generous people, God's grace through faithful servants, all this stuff. We, it's all from God. We owe everything, our lives, our breath, our building, our bodies, our money to, to God. What would, it, what would he have for us? What does it look like to be open-handed with what is already his? Now, the, the second showdown that we have after this brutal parable with the chief priest, they, they pick up, it's a parable. It's like, what? I'm just talking about vineyard. You know, I'm not talking about you. The, the chief priest realized the, that, uh, that they were, this parable was spoken against them. And so they, they go and get some reinforcements. In verse 13, it says, uh, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. This is a crazy moment. Um, it's the second crazy moment where we have the Pharisees and the Herodians colluding to 
catch Jesus, to kill Jesus. We saw it in chapter three of the gospel of Mark where Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and they're coming for him. They, wanna, they, they, they start conspiring on how to kill Jesus, which is crazy because the Pharisees hated the Herodians. You had the Pharisees, they're trying to like live this like pure, untainted law following life according to God's, uh, God's laws. And then you have the Herodians that were like serving Herod and the oppressing, oppressive Roman regime using uh, Jewish taxes to pay for debauched Roman living and all this stuff. But they hate Jesus so much that they're becoming friends. Enemies are becoming friends united under a common enemy, Jesus. The religious elite and the political elite both wanted to kill Jesus. And so they come to trap him about taxes. If Jesus says, don't pay taxes, the Herodians are right there and they can kill him for uh, treason, for trying to incite rebellion against Rome. If Jesus says, pay the taxes, then you know, the, um, the Pharisees would, would, would win because, uh, would be happy because then all the Jews would be furious at Jesus. Uh, because the taxes were incredibly oppressive. Like paying the oppressive taxes to the Roman Empire would have been like a economic tragedy for most Jewish people listening to Jesus right now. And Jesus' response is so brilliant. In verse 16, or starting in 15, he says, bring me a denarius, let me look at it. 16, they brought a coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? So this coin was a big deal. I have a picture of it here, I think. Yep. Uh, first, I'm filtering because there's a lot of stuff in the commentaries that we don't have to get into here. But suffice it to say, there was a stamped image of Caesar uh, Tiberius on here. And the words in Latin, you can see it's the front and back or whatever. They say, uh, son of God, high priest. If the Romans had gone out of their way to be offensive to the Jews by what they put on their coin, they couldn't have done it better. And this tax question is not purely economical uh, because of the, how much tax politi politics were all wrapped up in the Roman cult, seeing Caesar as the son of God, as the high priest of the high Roman cult. It was a spiritual thing. Like every coin in the empire was stamped with Caesar's face and every coin proclaimed that the, the inscription, the words on the coin proclaimed the, the good news that Caesar is Lord, the, the gospel, the evangelion that Caesar is Lord. So Jesus says, give it to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. What is stamped with God's image? You and me. Every single human who ever lived and ever will live is an image bearer of God. And then what is the inscription? What are the words humans are to proclaim? Well, Philippians 4 says that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that what? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is saying, give to Caesar this silly metal circle. If that finite mortal man who will die and be eaten by worms wants to stamp his likeness on tiny coins, that's fine. The true Lord and son of the one true God 
has stamped all of you, every one of you, with the image of God. And you can either confess that Jesus is Lord with joy and gratitude, that the existential weight of nihilism isn't on your shoulders anymore, and become like a child and receive the good news of living life with God and his love under his rule in his kingdom. Or you will confess that Jesus is Lord with fear and trembling on the last days when Jesus the King comes to establish his kingdom and judge the living and the dead. Friend, you owe it to God. You are stamped with his image and your life will flourish and God gets glory when you come under his loving authority, his loving lordship. As far as application goes, here's what I want to invite us to consider as a church family as we enter into this fall season. Being overdoing. I'm going to connect this to you, you owe it to God in a minute. I want to invite you to prioritize being with God relationally more than doing for God with activities. As, I, as I'm praying about where we are as a church family, uh, high joys of my job as I just spend a lot of time throughout my days and weeks praying. I feel this invitation from our Father to, to do less for Him so that we can be with Him more, draw near to Him and be with Him, to, to waste time in God's presence, to be less in a hurry, to slow down, to, to resist serving Him out of anxiety and to simply enjoy time with our Father. I love our church that we're an active church and we're an active church that's living in a time of human history that is so, so busy, where everyone feels so busy. How is your week? It's the standard reply. How is your week? So busy. And oftentimes churches and church people can be the most busy as we, even as we serve a God who says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about your life. And here's how it connects to what I think Jesus is saying in our text is that most of us are here because we love God and, and we do feel like we owe something to him. And what I think can happen in our hearts as, as, we, as we grow, as we're in the process of growing, is that we offer the parts to God that we want to give him. And, and I think it can be so easy to offer our doing to God, our activity to God. We're task-oriented people. It's how we show love. We want to do things for God. But it is a incredible depth of soul. It is a deep level, a, a vision for Christian maturity to be able to sit quietly with God in stillness and allow his loving gaze to fill our minds, to fill our hearts. This makes sense in the context of any human relationship, like in, like in marriage. If I like never sat down, I was always running around doing things in the house, getting chores done, making the yard immaculate, never sat down to listen to Camille, know what was going on in her life, to just enjoy being with her. Like how, what kind of marriage would that be? How intimate would that be? And even more tragically, imagine that I lived in the fear 
maybe subconsciously, that if I was ever not constantly doing stuff for Camille, she wouldn't love me or she'd leave me. Like what, what a miserable marriage that would be. But I, I can't help but is, is that how some of us relate to God? That if I actually sat down and looked at God, what I would see is disappointment. If I ever stopped and like took a nap, then God would be disappointed in me or frustrated I wasn't doing more. It's easy to offer to God what we feel like giving him, the parts that make us feel good or barter with him. Like, I'll give you this thing. I'll serve you and do all this stuff, but let me just eat whatever I want. Or let me look at whatever I want on my phone. I get to be the master of this other part of me. And as we consider the future of our church, I think we all have the desire to see our church grow healthier, to see our church grow, to see more being saved and joining our church family. And I believe the way this is going to happen is not through more busyness, through more activities or more programs that we've always done, but by you and I abiding in the vine, you and I being with God, offering not just our hands to God uh, to get stuff done, but our hearts to be with him to share what we feel with him, our, our eyes to, uh, to, to see him looking at us in love, our ears to listen. You listen to people you love, to listen to what he would say to us. And the two ways, uh, the kind of two focuses we have as a church family going into the fall, the ways that we can draw near to God or waste time with God is through prayer and region. The first thing is, is prayer. We start a little 30-minute, quick 30-minute prayer time on Sunday mornings at 8.30 in the chapel. And then starting in September on the third Monday, uh, we're, we're going to hopefully build as a church family to cover that entire 24-hour period uh, with prayer. Uh, we'll have a couple uh, a couple few like corporate prayer times throughout the day. And then you can sign up to take an hour of prayer. And um, Mark Large and the crew are working on making uh, Pastor Swanson's old office, part of the library, a dedicated prayer room, a permanent dedicated space for prayer. We have 52,000 square feet in our building and we're gonna have, I don't know, 200 or 150 of those square feet just set aside just for prayer where any of us can book some time and waste time with God, just be with God in the quiet. And then the second thing is our, our regeneration ministry that will launch in October. Uh, regeneration or, or short, region for short, is, is an opportunity. It's a, it's a big opportunity. It's a, it's a commitment uh, to take the next year, kind of starting in October, 10 or 11 months starting in October, uh, to draw near to God, to give him space to work in you, to address the habits that you can't kick, the bitterness that keeps you up at night, the wounds that you can't get over. It's like, you could think of it like an Emmaus walk spread out over, you know, once a week for 10 months instead of like three days in a weekend uh, or, or whatever. It's a, it's a time to, to set aside uh, to be with God. The cry of my heart is that many of us will do region this year that, that might require us to stop some activities uh, that, that we have been doing to create space to receive God's love. It's not forever. It's not every year, you know, or whatever region, you know, is, is, is kind of like a one-year thing uh, to draw near to God. Would you consider doing that? I've been, this Psalm has been on my mind all week as I've thought about this text. It's Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I love that last line. He gives to his beloved sleep. Will you receive his love? Maybe in literal sleep, but we're talking about rest for our souls in intimacy with Jesus. And the ferocious love of God is nestled in our text. In verse six, it says, he sent a son, my beloved son. Why in the world would the owner send his beloved son after all these servants had been beaten or killed? Well, this parable is not meant to be instruction on how to be a landlord and collect your rent. This parable is showing us how we are as humans and how God responds. Do you notice how often it said sent? He sent another and he sent another and he sent another. And then he finally sent his beloved son. That word in, in, in Greek, uh, send, uh, and it's, it's translation into Hebrew is, is the posture of God towards his people. The sending out of love. Like Jesus was sent into the world out of love. God sent, or the owner sending his beloved son shows his compassion. The mystery of God's extravagant love is that Jesus, the stone that was rejected, betrayed, killed on the cross, has now become the cornerstone of our entire relationship with God. All of us are the wicked tenants. All of us have sought to resist the reign of God over our lives. And yet God sent his beloved son, who instead of inciting rebellion against the Roman empire, instead absorbed our rebellion into his being and died on the cross. See Jesus on the cross, the crown of thorns on his head because he loves you. He died for all of our deeply flawed logic that we could do away with God's authority. He died for all of our busy work that kills love and makes us anxious. He died for all of our fear that would keep us stagnant and not engaging in life with God. See Jesus, the King who loved you to death, who calls you to submit to this good news, to yoke yourself to him and find rest for your souls. Let me pray. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.